This is the Energizing India podcast. During the last 24 months, our program has focused relentlessly on the clean mobility sector in India. So, for this episode, we decided to take a break and concentrate on the clean energy sector in India instead. Today, we feature a conversation with the CEO of one of Schneider Electric's companies in India, which proved incredibly refreshing, not only because we spoke about the energy transition that we are all witnessing across our daily lives, and how lithium will play a predominant role in the future of static energy applications, it was also refreshing because we had the privilege to speak with a global woman leader of Indian origin who has spent the bulk of her career in leadership roles in North America and Australia and is now back in India on a new business and technology growth challenge. My name is Ravin Mirchandani and we speak today with Preeti Bajaj, CEO of Luminous Power Technologies. Preeti, welcome to the program. Thank you, Ravin. It's exciting to be here. Preeti, you're a young woman entrepreneur with global experience across multiple geographies and multiple industries. In effect, a role model, not just for women in India, but also young people entering the workforce because of all that you've done. Uh, to read out just a bit, you got a degree from the University of Delhi in 1996, moved to Australia, joined Swinburne University, did an MBA in finance, four years later, Macquarie University for a master's degree in applied finance. And then you did um, INSEAD and also Harvard Business School. Uh, along the way, you were the CEO of ADECO in Australia and now a CEO of Luminous in India, a, a company that is part of the Schneider Electric Group. Uh, and all of this as a woman Indian entrepreneur leader. Um, I'm interested to achieve this requires uh, many sacrifices. How's that journey been for you? Um, the journey... Um has been very interesting, Ravin. Uh, what can I say? I mean, I'm humbled. It's, it sounds like it took, took me a long time to figure out what I was studying because obviously I studied a lot. Um, but look, uh, um, there's a book by the alchemist. Uh, and uh, I think what happens is that the shepherd uh, is looking for treasure. So he leaves home essentially and travels the world, collecting a whole lot of experiences and learnings along the way. Uh, only to return home to find that the gold was always buried under his own land. Uh, and if you haven't read the book, The Alchemist, I highly encourage it. It's a short read, but it's really pointed. It's a book I read every three years. So the journey's been like the shepherd, I would say so far. And now that I'm back in India, which is the home court from where I started, I feel a bit like the shepherd. And looking at India's growth and economic prosperity that awaits it, should we grab the opportunity it feels like that gold just might be here, whilst I thought it was all buried under Australia's land. So, Australia. Most people think that the pot of gold, in fact, is in Silicon Valley and they run <laughs> off to America. And the ones that don't get to America go to the UK. Um, was your move to Australia by accident? Because it was for me. Uh, it was an accident. A fortunate one, I must say, and I love Australia too. Um, so what actually happened was that I wanted to go to the US. Uh, however, uh, at that time, US was very strict on, uh, you know, work visas or work regulation while you were a student. And I um, kind of needed to make sure that I had the right to work as well. And Australia offered it. And I happened to be one of the few lucky ones who also kind of got extended a scholarship in those days when, you awesome. know, it was just opening up. So I kind of grabbed the opportunity. Frankly, Ravin, I'd never even seen Australia on a map. And then I just saw a photograph of Swinburne University and I went, 
that looks great. I should go there. And that was it. And I remember getting on the plane and like crossing Singapore and thinking, what have I done? And landing on the other side, I remember getting out. It was 26th of June, 1998. It was Melbourne. It's winter, by the way, in June in, um, in Australia. Uh, and I walked out and it was so quiet. So I turned to the customs officer and I said, excuse me, sir, is it a holiday? He said, no, ma'am, this is all we've got. <laughs> Excellent. I got to Australia, I think, a few years before you. It was 1993 and I must have been the only Indian who got off the plane in Brisbane. And the taxi driver had never seen an Indian from India. They'd only seen Indians from Fiji. So you know, there wasn't even an Indian restaurant. So you know, today, uh, what, a, what, a, what a journey for India in Australia, given that India is the second largest domicile immigrant community after the UK in Australia. 800,000 people since that journey when both of us landed there being probably one of the very few Indians in our cities. Indeed, indeed. Um, so Preeti, every expat, and you've, you, you know, you've, you have American experiences with Australian, every expat goes through uh, the two curves on landing in any country. You have the, in the, in the beginning, the discomfort and the frustration with all of the, all of the cultural habits of that location. And then you have the second curve, which is to fall in love with the culture that you inhabit. Uh, and then, of course, then the depression of leaving. Uh, you, you, you've gone through that in Australia. Uh, you did that in America. And now you've come back to India 28 years later. Uh, India is a very different country uh, from the one that you left. Um, how does it feel? Do you feel, it's, do you feel it's a different paradigm, a parallel universe? Or do you still feel you can touch the country you left and, and understand it? Yeah, so there is a saying in uh, Delhi Punjabis, and I'm a Delhi Punjab girl, so I'll say it. You know, you can take the girl out of Punjab, but you can't take the Punjab out of the girl. <laughs> Excellent. So you feel right at home. Um, I do. I do. And, and then I'm getting this very privileged opportunity, Ravin, to discover India again, but with perhaps what is a holistic lens. I think if I may be very honest or authentic about the journey of leaving, uh, I left in India that had just opened. It had liberalized in 1991. I think our currency actually floated uh, in global markets in that year as well. 25 rupees. That's right. That's right. And, uh, you know, I think a top-notch salary was no more than 10,000 rupees a month. And, and in that moment, uh, as the youth of India, all we had was a choice to actually do brain drain. Mm -hmm. uh, I think India today, 23, 24, five years later, is actually sitting at the moment of brain gain. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think that's a privileged opportunity to be part of that. Mm -hmm. Discovering India with a holistic lens, uh, I learned a lot uh, from the cultures that uh, I got exposed to. Uh, Australia, case in point, my short stint in the US. Uh, and what I learned uh, was how important it is to unlearn things that you think are absolutes of life and that's the only way to adapt in other countries uh, and uh, when you do so you realize how much resilience or elasticity i call it cultural elasticity mm -hmm. that you actually have uh, sometimes when you just live in one location and there is perhaps the no need to adapt theory going on in your life you don't examine how much elasticity you have and the greater the cultural elasticity i think the greater the horizon of a professional uh, so, uh, hence, I'm back here uh, hoping that I have cultural elasticity and rediscovering India with those very eyes and learning uh, that, uh, you know, India has morphed. It is uh, standing at the precipice of opportunity. Uh, it is uh, one of the, the 
nations in the world that's made a massive commitment to net zero. It's making bolder moves. So I'm glad to be back at a, at a bolder India, uh, an India that is proud and, and loud as well uh, in all manner of sayings, including the Bollywood music. And of course, uh, you know, I'm only too happy to see a lot more foreign direct investment, a lot more brain gain, a lot more technology emerging in the country. I really do believe uh, there might be the industrial 4.0 in the world. I believe it is India's manufacturing 4.0 that should happen. I think I read this morning in Economic Times that India in 2028 will be a manufacturing hub. And I think India must not lose that opportunity. And the call out to, I suppose, all of us who are in the business world is that we should take that up openly and make our space because uh, to say it in Hindi, you know, sitare agar aapke upar chamak rahe hain, tab bhi aap kismut pe chauka na mara, to then what's the point? Uh, and Hindustan ka sitara, I think, is... is it's glittering in the world. That's what I'd say. Hopefully this time we won't steal defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, <laughs> so the alchemist comes back uh, to the pot of gold. It's, it's, it's very exciting. Um, I want to talk to you about Luminous. But before Luminous, the company that you manage in India, you worked with uh, Clipsal, an Australian icon. Uh, sponsors the great race that used to be between the two cars made in, in Australia, Ford and Holden, uh, bought by Schneider. Luminous in India was bought by Schneider. And here you are now the uh, CEO of one of Schneider's companies in India, Luminous. Uh, I was reading, aiming to be 6,000 crores in the next couple of years. So a very, very big, uh, big aggressive growth plan for you. Uh, Luminous does many things. You, yes. you do a lot of energy storage work. You, you make inverters, UPSs, you do work with solar, and you also make batteries. And uh, so my first question is, how would you define Luminous as a business in India today? Yeah, um, so I would say that we are a consumer business packing technology and energy in a box for the home consumer and light commercial businesses of this country. We are also truly a make in India home solutions business in the energy sector. And we are the company that is helping to the customers of this nation solve the pain point of, I suppose, do I have energy uh, nonstop to do I have control over my energy so that I have uninterrupted business uh, in my case, that entire spectrum. Um, so that's the way we would kind of think about our business in terms of business lines, to get more uh, corporate about it, I would say that we have, uh, of course, our specific business line for power backup. So inverter and battery solutions for the home consumer, for the light commercial uh, business applications, the, the jewelry store down the track, the, the small shop down the track, or, or, or even a small factory attached to a home. You know, we can apply solar solutions, we can do modules of solar, we can put an inverter and we can put a battery bank and it can literally act as a energy saving device because you can actually save money on your electricity bill. But we can also be there, become a power backup unit mm -hmm. in essence when the electricity goes. Mm -hmm. So uh, I would say that, uh, um, you know, Hamaraj, the kind of uh, kind of way of looking at it is, is how we think about it. Our second line of business, solar, is is more about providing uh, you know packaged solar solutions for the home consumer. That typically is a, a 
you know, a very well adapted in smaller home consumer loads in say sub 1 kVA, sub 2 kVA packages. And we are seeing the progression of India. I always say that if an economist actually did a statistical correlation between the uh, kVAs of our inverter sales across India and mapped it to the progression of the increasing per capita income of the regions, they will find a correlation. Mm -hmm. Because as people's income pools rise, their ability to buy home appliances rise, as their ability to buy home appliances rise, the need for a bigger inverter and solar solution also rises. So we have this direct correlation with India's growth and economy and the way we live, essentially. Energy is the way we live. All I am proud to share though that we have opened our uh, Dubai offices as well uh, and uh, we are starting to export to international markets so we are very much in line with the make in India philosophy um, and we are uh, now supplying inverter batteries as well as solar and storage solutions to three regions Middle East and North Africa, East Africa and West Africa and also to South Asia PAC. So you are sitting right in the middle of the energy transition, so to speak, with everything that you've just described. Uh, you're going from what used to be emergency to smart. Uh, and you're, you're going from disconnected green renewable energy generation to something that will be supporting the grid or connected to the grid. And that requires a whole level of smart. From the perspective of Luminous, you know, we're all in this transition. Every, every industry, whether you're looking at ICE to EV, uh, you know, static energy going for various chemistries of lithium to hydrogen. Mm -hmm. uh, what does the energy transition mean for Luminous? Yes, it, it means we have to be very awake, uh, I would say. So energy transition means that we now know that there is a customer that certainly is looking for, I want to run a few appliances, I want to run two fans, uh, three tube lights and maybe something else uh, and just want to run it for enough time while there is a power cut. The other side of it is, is I want something very sophisticated that is connected, that's on the app, it's compact, it's talking to me, it's potentially even Alexa integrated and is telling me the state of charge of my battery while I'm sitting in my home lounge or for that matter, uh, somehow connected to my EV and is telling me that, you know, uh, you can, when you're home, I'm ready for you to charge. But in that spectrum within that is actually a transitioning energy situation where power curve of maybe say uh, how much power cut we have in states is going down, but also the need, some some of this uh, sort of rural areas still don't have utility line feeders, but then others are power surplus and there is a solar economy of, of home consumption also emerging. So at the center of energy transition is potentially a consumer, we believe, that wants power backup and uh, power control combined. Mm -hmm. uh, to that effect, we've innovated and launched our hybrid inverter to give you a more tangible example. So that's a solar PCU, a solar power conditioning unit, and can convert into a grid tied inverter as well, uh, and can transport your excess energy, uh, not to the grid, but in fact to a battery bank mm -hmm. as well. And you can connect it with a Wi-Fi dongle to the cloud and know how the device is actually performing. It's called a hybrid inverter. So energy transition mm -hmm. will perhaps force us as product developers to look for that product market fit that sits the transitioning energy economy. Uh, that's how we see it at this stage. I'm certainly not sitting here and saying that that's the answer, uh, but certainly we believe that innovation must come in uh, and we must drive that, that help for the consumer to be able to transition without feeling like that there was only one or the other option available.
So something in the middle will actually survive for a lot longer than we think. I think you and I were talking earlier, there will be, there will always be lead acid and there will be the growth of lithium ion and maybe there will be some other alternatives as well. So when we think about battery chemistry, chemistries, we think of them as holistically. More importantly, we think of them from a consumer centric standpoint. Uh, one is application and the other is how much am I willing to pay uh, for that service, uh, power packed, uh, irrespective of the chemistry. What is my utility? So because you said, how much am I willing to pay? I'm going to ask the question that's the pink elephant in the room before we go to lithium, which is the main subject for today. And that is um, cost effectiveness of products and our ability to compete against China. Uh, India is a zero sum game, zero one. Uh, the cheapest wins, uh, we call it cost effective, cheap and best, whatever, whatever platitudes we want to throw at it, but the cheapest always wins. And China does in a week what most Indian factories do in a year. And so the economies of scale are greatly skewed. Uh, their, their taxation system, infrastructure system, everything else gives them incredible advantages. Do you face significant competition or are you quarantined or are you so good that they have left your end of the business and don't bother to compete with you? Jeez, uh, man, I've got to be careful how I answer this. Here's what I think. I think, um, and I, I'm going to, this is, this is my observation. My observation is that the opportunity is there now for us to invest in defining what the premium consumer segment deserves. Um, what I would say is that if we were to manufacture for the price discerning customer, the value conscious customer, I think Indian companies have done a great job with the Indian customer at the center of it. Uh, however, I, I think we owe it to ourselves, uh, and I'm kind of maybe speaking on behalf of the community in some ways, uh, to go to that next stage of bringing uh, something different, something smarter. Um, We've seen far too many examples of high quality can drive or extract a higher premium in many, many other countries. you got to be kidding me to tell me that the Indian customer doesn't want it because many of us pack our bags with stuff from the US and stuff from Europe and bring it back here, don't we? So uh, I suppose if we could create uh, some adaptation of that. Uh, which kind of takes us up to that middle India or perhaps even from middle India to the premium India. Uh, in the manufacturing world, our ambition should be to service those segments as well. That's the way I see uh, it. You know, you're absolutely right, because today, if you look at the, the, the EVs that are being sold, mm. the biggest seller is the Tata, and mm. the Tata Nexon actually feels really good to drive. Oh. If you compare its two competitors, which are the Kona and the, and the MGZS, the three that were available for the, for the last two years, the Tata is actually one of the best drives, and we had a lot of people from around the world sit in the car go, what is this? You know, it's a, so it, it is possible to achieve what you're talking about. Absolutely. Absolutely. So coming to then uh, lithium and, and lead acid, you're a battery manufacturer, have been for a long time, uh, do a very good job at lead, lead acid battery you. manufacturing. It's all, it's all because of the team. <laughs> <laughs> um, what we've noticed is in the last seven years is there's a big shift to lithium. And a lot of that is driven by mobility, of course. And, you, know, you are clearly in static energy applications, not automotive. Um, what are your thoughts about the transition to lithium? Is this something that is in your radar? Are you going to move to lithium? Are, are you waiting for chemistries beyond lithium? Do you think lithium has applications in the energy, static energy uh, uh, application or energy storage market? Where are you at with that? Okay, so, I mean, uh, 
I don't have to think whether lithium mine has applications in the static energy market. They are proven in the world, right? I mean, I've come Tesla back from balls. a country to, yes. <laughs> where uh, every home has an eight kilowatt inverter with a 16, or not every, but every fourth home has an eight kilowatt inverter with a 16 kilowatt hour battery pack, uh, all ready to charge their new electric vehicle that they're going to buy. So I think if we are talking about the fact that has lithium been adapted enough in markets, I would say the MVP is is kind of done in the developed world. Um, and, you know, I think it was you, Ravin, who was telling me this afternoon, if all of us decided to drive EVs, maybe there wouldn't be enough lithium ion in the world. So the way we look at it is that uh, if I put the consumer at the center, the consumer doesn't necessarily care which chemistry it is. They care about the application a lot more and the cost of that application and how that fits into their lifestyle. I think that even applies to cars. It so happens that lithium ion and the mobility technology seems to be the right fit for now, sitting from the outside. In the static world, we believe that mobility will drive lithium into the home and that uh, my thesis is that when you drive your car or whether that is your scooter or whether that is your bike, where are you going to go? You're going to go home eventually and most likely than not, you would want to charge it. So, and for that purpose, you would want to make sure that you have a home appliance infrastructure of charging, uh, power conversion, or for that matter, uh, cheap solar energy on your rooftop, charging your battery throughout the day to make sure that you can charge your car at a cost competitive price. So I do see a world that that will happen, but we also believe that maybe given the, you know, India is like not one India, it's like five Indias, five regions or multiple segments. So I think, you know, we we will have to see what other options are there. Uh, and that's the view we've taken. We've taken a holistic view. We, we are we are strong in lead acid, if I may say so myself. We have launched a 1100 VA 12.8 volts inverter battery bank product, which is available on Amazon. It's called Lithium Iron Lion. Um, and, uh, you know, 150 consumers across the country today are using that product for their power backup needs. And they tell us so far that it's hassle-free and it's fast charging and uh, that uh, it's compact. That's why they like it. None of them actually mention the words lithium iron. Um, so uh, they care about safety, they care about cost, and they care about what does it do. Uh, so in though in the same essence, we believe there could be other options. There could be nickel metal hydrate, there could be uh, uh, silicon jewel technology. We have partnered with certain companies from all over the world to explore those things. I think I was in some article sort of announcing that uh, under the leadership of RSVP of R&D, Amlan Kantidas. So, um, you know, we're hopeful. You know, that there's, something a, will be there's many chemistries coming beyond lithium yeah. and it'll be, you know, horses for courses. So mm -hmm. sodium ion will be brilliant for trucks and rickshaws. If mm -hmm. you need to go slow and long, sodium ion would work. Um, and beyond that, you have superconductors and then beyond that, there's even hydrogen. Um, are you looking at this space or is it too early for home related applications for fuel cell hydrogen or other sorts of chemistries that are beyond lithium such as sodium? Yeah, I, I'm going to wait for you to do the hydrogen stuff, Ravin, and then when it's ready and you've got it down to a price point, I'll have a look at it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely well said. It's what, $9 a kg today and it's, yeah. it's supposed to come down to $1.50 over yeah. the next three years. I, so. I think it's, mm. it's too complex, perhaps, at this stage, uh, you know. Um, I'm not. I'm never not saying never say never. It's it's an it's an alternative. I feel like it, it's got a way to go. Um, 
and I think uh, the industrial side will perhaps adopt it uh, first. Yes, absolutely, uh, at, at scale. Yeah. yeah, typically that's what happens in the technology cost curve. When it comes to home, it's already been tested in the industrial grids, if you yeah. like. Yeah. So if you come back to, to lithium then, um, I'm interested in your opinion as an industry leader in the in the battery industry on why it's taken India so long to get its first lithium cell manufacturing gigafactory up and running. Why is it that China rules that world uh, and Europe is catching up, America is catching up, but we've been late uh, to the party almost? I don't know. I feel like, and, and maybe this is just a very nascent or naive view, I feel like we just kind of thought about it this year. Mm. You're absolutely right. Literally right. had no cognitive space in the mind of the nation. Uh, and and I think there was a lot going on, perhaps. Um, and I think the urgent call to action is that we have to make cognitive space for R&D. We have to make cognitive and financial space for R&D uh, to be accelerated. Um, I'm very, very uh, pleased with the startup ecosystem but, you know, maybe there is an opportunity for us to learn from other ecosystems that have been successful as to how we can accelerate that. We have this sort of leapfrog moment. Um, but if we don't have the cognitive space for like allowing our people to go into R&D fields and think about these things. Uh, I love what you say about your company. We are a thinking company. Um, you know, we've got to be a thinking country to a portion to be ahead of the curve, to invest at the right times and to take a view on tech. Tech, once it's there, means all the all the advantage has probably been capitalized on. Mm -hmm. Someone's got it. You were late to the curve. So I think that, that mindset of we should only do it perhaps when it's cheap, uh, or maybe take greater risks at some points, maybe as an industry collaborate to take joint risk uh, those are some options I think we could consider. Last question then, and this, this is the difficult one. This is the one on policy. Um, in, in line with everything. <laughs> if I was going to do policy, I would be in politics, Robin, and I'm not. <laughs> I'll, I'll push you on it anyway. In line with everything that you just said, I love, I love what you've said, which is to create the cognitive space to make the change here. If there was one policy, you know, one policy change that needed to happen to allow for that to happen, what do you think it needs to be for India? income tax credits for home consumers who put on solar. <laughs> Excellent. I'm surprised we don't do that because that's how the world got off their feet to, that's to make exactly it happen. That's exactly right. Yeah. California did it. We yeah. had, uh, Australia did Australia it. Australia did it. I think income tax credits for the home consumer when they put solar on. Excellent, Preeti. I'm sure that you've got a bunch of corporate legal counsels working on that submission to government. <laughs> but, but on that note, you have a plane to catch. It's been an absolute pleasure to have you in the Artemis Studio of Energizing India. Thank you so much for having made the time. Thank you, Revan, and thank you for a great entrepreneur yourself helping energize India too. It's been a pleasure. Pleasure. Thank you so much. I'm your host for this episode, Ravin Mirchandani. But I would not be here without the amazing Energizing India podcast team. Onkar, our podcast director and the man who makes it all happen in the end, much like a big fat grand Indian wedding, bringing together the research data and attention to details, all in the timelines to get the next episode out on time. Three Vikram, our podcast co-host and head of research, and Sunil, who along with me is executive producer of our program. The Energizing India podcast is an Ador Digatron production, giving a voice to the EV industry in India. 
If you enjoyed listening to us today, make sure to follow us on whatever platform you are listening on, whether it's Spotify, Apple iTunes, or our own portal, energizingindia.tv. Thank you very much, and see you on the next episode.